Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 257. Are you familiar with the the internet debate over uh, whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich? I'm familiar. <laughs> <laughs> that is the voice of famed psychologist Celeste Kidd. She is a cognitive scientist and developmental psychologist who is well known for her research on human curiosity and human certainty, how brains develop knowledge. My name is Celeste Kidd. I am an assistant professor in psychology at UC Berkeley. And my lab is the Kid Lab. We study human belief formation. Kid studies how we acquire and conceptualize information, how we form beliefs around those concepts, and in general, makes sense of the torrent of information blasting its way into our nervous systems via all the senses, and how that affects our development, how the development of the mind proceeds from childhood all the way to the day we find ourselves in an argument about whether a hot dog is a sandwich. So, what do you think? Is a hot dog a sandwich? This is one of those debates that became the central topic of discussion in our marketplace of ideas a few years back. One of those viral moments that spread all across the internet and then into homes and house parties. If you missed out on this, you really missed out on a mid-2010s cultural milestone because everyone chimed in on this, from Meryl Streep to Matt Damon to Better Homes and Gardens to Reader's Digest to the National Hot Dog Council. And yes, there is a National Hot Dog Council. The Today Show ran a piece about it, and so did The Verge and USA Today and Parade and The Guardian. Even Supreme Court Justice... Ruth Bader Ginsburg chimed in on this, saying, quote, You tell me what a sandwich is, and then I'll tell you if a hot dog is a sandwich. Stephen Colbert, who was interviewing her, replied to that definition by suggesting the definition of a sandwich was two pieces of bread with any filling in between, as long as the filling was not also bread. Ginsburg then asked if that included a roll cut openly, but not completely. He said yes, since many Subway sandwiches fit that definition, and the two agreed that yes, hot dogs were sandwiches. And soon, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary came down definitively on this topic, stating that, yes, a hot dog is a sandwich because, quote, the definition of sandwich is two or more slices of bread or a split roll 
having a filling in between. And they didn't mention if bread could be that filling, but we have to assume maybe so. However, many others disagreed with all of these sources. Anthony Bourdain said the bread in a hot dog was just a ballistic delivery system for the meat and its toppings. And therefore, it was not a sandwich in his view. Eric Mittenthal, the president of the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council, concurred, telling allrecipes.com, quote, a hot dog is not a sandwich. If you go to a hot dog vendor and you say, give me a sandwich, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. It's just culturally not the same as a sandwich. And he added, quote, in essence, it boils down to a hot dog is its own unique item that exceeds the sandwich category. It breaks itself free of the sandwich category. When you saw that debate, what did you think of it? Going like, uh, First of all, what is your opinion? And then what do you think of, of the public discussing the area of your expertise? What is my opinion? Uh, is a hot dog a sandwich? I, I don't have a strong opinion on that one, um, but I love that that's a question. I love hearing people talk about it. I love seeing how confident people are that whatever their intuitive judgment is, is the right thing. And I love seeing people argue with each other and be sure they're going to convince the other person when I like, we've seen this, these kinds of debates before. And I know it's minds are very rarely changed for this one. (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, I, you know, I love that debate in part because it demonstrates not only are people's concepts not aligned, people are not good at representing that variability. People are generally expecting that whatever concept they have in mind, the other person will share. If you think um, that a hot dog is a sandwich, you are sure that everybody else should think a hot dog is a sandwich and you are offended if they do not. It feels wrong. It feels wrong. And and um, the seeing that play out in this debate is the most fun part of that debate for me. As Kid just mentioned, our concepts don't always align. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode with psychologist Celeste Kidd. Semantic disagreements. The notion of talking past each other. Kidd has a new paper which details her research into just how misaligned we are, conceptually speaking, but also how unaware of how misaligned we are, which results in an unsupported confidence in the notion that when you are discussing just about anything with just about anyone, the odds that you share the same subjective idea, notion, concept, mental model, schema of what you are discussing is very, very low. For instance, in the paper, they found that when one person says the word penguin out loud in a conversation, the odds that the other person, the person listening, is imagining the same concept, the same penguin as the speaker, the odds are around 12%. Yes, there's a nearly 90% chance that the last time you discussed penguins with another person, you weren't really discussing the same idea. And if we aren't sharing the same penguin in our penguin discussions, then imagine what happens when we discuss politics or religion or philosophy or 
anything even slightly more abstract than penguins. But before we get into that, Kid had something else to add to the sandwich hot dog debate. Have you ever, there's work where they ask questions that are even weirder than like, is a hot, it's a hot dog a sandwich, I feel like is a pretty reasonable question. Um, Mm -hmm. You can ask people weird questions like, what's a better hot dog? Is it a snake or a table? Um, And that's a weird question to ask because it is like a snake is not a hot dog. A table is not a hot dog. But you can ask that and people will, they don't like answering it, but they'll answer it and they'll all say, snake. A snake is a better hot dog <laughs> than a table. Um, uh, that says something very interesting about our conceptual systems. It says something about them being probabilistic. Um, it says something about the compositional nature of them. So like presumably a snake is a better hot dog than a table, maybe because it involves like living matter. is like, that's kind of gross, but it's like, it's like meat. It's also like the same shape kind of as a hot dog. But again, it's weird that we can answer that question and we can all be surprisingly aligned on agreeing that like a hot dog, uh, sorry, a snake is a better hot dog than a, than a, than a table. So um, I, I find these debates um, enjoyable in part because of all of the things they call attention to that we don't understand about human cognition. I love seeing people get very passionate. Again, that says something about um, uh, the strength of our intuitions that are not right about when I use a word and you use a word, people really feel like we should be activating the same concept. And even in the face of evidence that we don't, as like people are split on that one, um, uh, it's really hard for us to wrap our head around that. It feels like it's... (laughs) Celeste Kidd is a professor at Berkeley and heads up the Kidd Lab, which carries the torch of psychologists like Jean Piaget, Maria Montessori, and Lev Vygotsky. In her lab, she and her colleagues conduct all sorts of experiments to better understand how our minds engage in learning and create knowledge and conjure abstractions and interpret ideas and conceive and make sense of concepts and schemas and models of reality. They use really cool stuff like eye tracking and they develop apps and they measure all manner of human behavior and communication. It's incredible work. I was very excited to get a chance to spend some time with Kid because her lab recently published a paper that is exactly the thing I was looking for right now at this moment because I'm in the middle of researching, I'm in the middle stages of researching my new book about what the word genius really means, which has me exploring linguistics and cognition and intelligence and creativity and so on. And in particular, I'm fascinated with how we articulate the ineffable and how we come to agree or disagree on concepts like what is a genius? What does that word mean? But also, Kid's newest paper is a great topic to discuss as a sort of epilogue to the project we just finished here on the podcast, the three-part series where I interviewed authors of recent books about how to have better conversations and better disagreements with people who see the world differently, which is the topic of my most recent book, How Minds Change. Those were the three episodes before this one, and as it turns out, Kid's work has a lot to say about that topic from a cognitive science perspective. And Kid's newest paper puts, in my mind, the final nail in the coffin of something called the information deficit model, one of those old ideas about scientific communication that, ironically, has not stood up to the scientific analysis applied to it. In that model, there's this concept called 
knowledge deficit, which posits that many of the problems faced by civilizations arise from a lack of access to scientific information. And if more people had more access to scientific evidence, if they just knew the facts, then they'd stop being so unscientific and superstitious and cult-like and extremist and so on. We would become less polarized and more engaged politically. It's a great idea. It's a wonderful dream. But the last 100 years of psychological research on this topic has revealed that the more education you gain on any topic, the better you become at rationalizing and justifying your existing beliefs and attitudes, regardless of their accuracy or harmfulness, and the better you become at working towards your goals, however motivated they may be, however motivated your reasoning may become. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. All that and more after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And 
I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. One of the things that I love most about psychology and cognitive science in general is that much of the work up until now has been taking concepts from philosophy and putting them to the test, quantifying them, seeing if they hold up to scientific scrutiny. In the realm of epistemology, the philosophical discipline that asks, how do we know stuff? How do we know anything? And what does it even mean to know things? You know, what is the nature of knowledge itself? is the question of how people's concepts align. That is, when I debate politics with you, are my concepts of democracy and taxation and national defense and so on, are they the same concepts as yours? But it goes much deeper than that. Are your concepts of bananas and biscuits and beach volleyball, are they the same as mine? Are your concepts of love and justice and truth, are they the same as mine? Here's Celeste Kidd. 
this has been studied in various ways over a very long period of time. As long as people have been trying to communicate with other people, they've wondered, why is this so hard? Why is this so hard? See, there's a chance that when we meet to discuss an issue, we're just going to talk past each other while assuming we're not doing that, that we're truly connecting and that when we can't get on the same page, when we disagree, we assume all sorts of other things about the nature of our disagreement when it could be as simple as our concepts are not aligning. This whole idea, it's old, it's ancient. So understanding and overcoming all of this could be a true breakthrough. But in psychology, with the scientific method applied to the matter, much of our past attempts have, in Celeste Kidd's words, stumbled because we don't really understand the compositional nature of most concepts. In other words, we can't yet open the black box of the skull and peer into the subjective experience of consciousness to measure and quantify and map out the differences between one person's mental models and another's. We know there must be variation in our personal concepts, in our subjective representations, and in our interpretations, but all of that must be measured indirectly. And until now, there hasn't really been a great way to do that. There have been various attempts to look at to what degree we are aligned with one another. One of my favorite examples of an attempt to do this was Bill LaBeouf. Bill LaBeouf uh, was interested in the ways in which people's concept al- concepts aligned or they didn't. And he picked the domain of cups and bowls because this is a domain in which actually you can have uh, pretty good intuitions about which dimensions might matter for where you draw this, this category boundary. If you think about what makes a cup a cup or what makes a bowl a bowl, it's not really about the absolute size. It's more about the relationship between the height and the width. The shorter and squattier and the wider it is, the more people tend to say that that's a bowl. The taller and skinnier it is, um, the more they tend to say that that's a cup. Uh, And then there's a couple other features that you can add that will bias people to think it's a cup or a bowl. So if you add a handle, that's more likely to be assigned the cup category than the bowl category. And then this is really cool. he, He also manipulated the context in which you show people pictures of possible cups and possible bowls. Uh, And if you add a food context, people will like accept things as a bowl for longer (laughs) than they will um, uh, if there's not uh, food present. So Bill LaBeouf is a great example of someone who was thinking about conceptual variability and was coming at it from a compositional perspective. He was trying to figure out how do we represent these concepts? How can you explore alignments if you don't know how the concept is represented? You can't really. And that's basically the impediment that people came into when they were thinking about these questions. So for cups and bowls, what his work showed is that there is quite a bit of alignment at the center of the category. There's more disagreement at the edges and you can manipulate the category boundary, it's not just based on the height and the width of the bowl, it's also the context in which it's occurring in. So he studied this, but he he was not able to, he wasn't really focused on trying to quantify how much variability there is. Um, that was a question people had asked, but had difficulty making progress on because of all that we don't know about the compositional nature of concepts. So like cups and bowls, Heights and widths are relevant. Uh, how do you represent a dog? How do you represent the concept of love? How do you represent uh, even a table? Uh, even for concrete objects, it's not clear how we're doing that. Um, there's various proposals on the table. There's a lot of work um, uh, trying to look specifically at that uh, part of the problem. 
Eleanor Roche famously proposed prototype theory by which she suggested that how you're representing these things is you take all of the particular instance of a, a cup or a bowl or a table, you integrate those, but what you're storing and what you're using in order to judge whether something is cup-like or bowl-like is a, is a prototypical example of a cup or a bowl. So there have been a lot of proposals over the years for how we represent concepts for what the compositional nature is. If we don't have that solved, it was hard to see how you could measure to what degree concepts align when we don't even know like how, to, how, to, how to imagine how they're represented. So Celeste Kidd and her colleagues in their new paper titled Latent Diversity in Human Concepts, that's what they set out to do with their research to solve some of these problems, to understand how these became great cocktail party questions. Hot dogs? Are they sandwiches? Is a hot dog more a snake or is it more a table? And in so doing, they discovered some really unexpected things, one of which involves how surprisingly misaligned we all are when it comes to the subject of penguins. Uh, Tell me if I'm wrong here. The probability that two people selected at random will share the same concept about penguins is around 12%. <laughs> that sounds about right. It's about that. More often than not, when you think of penguin, and I think of penguin, we are not activating the exact same concept. When you think about penguins, and when I think about penguins, and dear listener, whoever you are, when whatever you're thinking about when it comes to penguins, there's an assumption that if we all sat down and sort of talking about how much we like penguins or how cute they are, that we all have the same thing happening in our brains. And your research suggests that's about a 12% chance that that's actually happening. Very likely, it's super likely, it's almost certain that we are not actually having the same subjective experience of feeling, thinking, imagining, and remembering penguins. That That is correct. Um, there's further evidence of exactly why in the paper. So uh, we did a, a second um, study where we looked to see Given that we can now quantify that your penguin and my penguin are probably not the same uh, <laughs> penguin concept, um, why are our penguin concepts different? I would also add that so so what we are not talking about when we talk about differences in the concept is um, differences in the context. So we're not talking about like maybe you're thinking about a cartoon penguin and maybe I'm thinking about a penguin I saw at the zoo. Um, controlling for the context, your overall concept of penguin uh, is fundamentally different from mine most of the time. And when we go back and then try to figure out why, um, uh, we can do that by looking at agreement or disagreement across people in terms of the features. Um, So I can tell you that there are some aspects of penguin concepts along which people are very aligned. Um, People agree that penguins are flightless. Uh, They agree that penguins are cute. Um, They agree uh, that they are birds. Um, they agree that they are not furry. Um, where people differ in terms of their concepts are along features like the weight of a penguin. So people disagree about whether a penguin is heavy or light, and people are pretty much split on that one, which is very interesting because it's clear in that case that that variability is in part coming from a lack of experience getting to pick up a penguin. If you pick up a penguin, you would know something about the weight of a penguin. Really, to have a a, a good sense of how heavy or light penguins are, you'd want to pick up a bunch of different penguins of a bunch of different varieties. People, when you ask them, are, are split on penguins' weight because some people have a very strong intuition that they should be heavy because they kind of look like they're 
when they're wobbling, they're not flying. Maybe they're not flying because they're heavy. Other people have a strong intuition that penguins should be light because they are birds and they have bird bones. Um, so this is another thing you can bring out at a party when you're trying to divide people. I want to go to your cocktail parties where you're asking people contentious questions about hot dogs and whether they're sandwiches. I was like, if you want to further divide your cocktail party, you can ask them about whether they think penguins are heavy or light. You're, you're invited. You're invited. It cannot be understated just how much semantic disagreement factors into our social, legal, and personal conflicts. So understanding scientifically the origins of those disagreements is vital and important work. Semantic cognition is understanding the meaning of things, I guess. Simply put, there is substantial variability in terms of how people are representing different concepts, what they understand them to mean. When I say a word and you hear the word, when you say the word and I hear the word, what the paper is showing is that we have a tendency to overestimate the degree to which our concepts align. The paper presents a new method for quantifying the degree to which our concepts do not align. Um, and it turns out even for very common concrete objects, yeah, our concepts are, are misaligned more often than they are aligned. In Kid's most recent research, she and her team found at least 10 to 30 quantifiably different variations of even our most common nouns. And I love this because I've been interviewing all sorts of experts on this topic on how difficult it is to agree on definitions and how difficult it is to define some words in particular, especially the abstract ones, what linguists sometimes call conceptual shells. Words like genius and morality and intelligence and curiosity and life in the biological sense. And I've learned that for each one of those words, and for many others, a huge part of what goes on in any scientific discipline is participation on every conceivable level in a debate over just what those words mean exactly. I've been told that one of the quickest ways to derail a conference or a meeting or any gathering of academics is to write a word on a whiteboard or put it up on a slide something like genes or species or measurement, and then suggest, before we can continue, let's agree on what that word means exactly. <laughs> this rarely goes well and can send people into an hour-long debate until they finally go, what are we doing? Psychologist Andy Luttrell told me that much of psychology, especially in the early decades, was mostly just a debate around definitions. And he pointed me toward a book by Kurt Danziger titled Naming the Mind, How Psychology Found Its Language, which is about this very thing. So, I asked Kid about how all of that might have influenced her decision to get into this line of work. I think it started, for me, with um, uh, wanting to understand what was true. My background was actually not uh, in science, I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be a scientist. I thought I was going to be an investigative reporter. Um, I had Associated Press reporters in my family, and I thought the highest calling was going out, finding out what's true in the world, especially discovering truths that are um, uh, reflective of people that don't usually have a voice. Um, uh, you find what's true, you tell people what's true, uh, and the world changes was was my view of things. And um, uh, I went to college. My first majors were computer science and journalism. I thought I was going to do that. And uh, it doesn't take much interacting with people 
about a topic that you care about before you realize, I was like, it's really hard to uh, <laughs> align in terms of values, in terms of concepts. Um, uh, I think a lot of the inspiration for my work um, was arguments I had with editors over the years about like, no, this is important. And also you've edited my piece and this is not what I meant. Uh, you don't have the right idea. Um, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in what are the psychological limits to how close we can get to objective truth in the world? Um, how can we get better access to what is true through coordination with one another? Uh, and that necessarily involves having conversations with people and trying to align in terms of what conceptual representations you're thinking of. You're trying to, when you talk to somebody and coordinate with them, uh, get the same image and concepts and ideas in their mind as what you are thinking. And uh, that's really hard. So I, I was interested uh, in this piece in exploring what uh, exactly, how hard of a problem is that? <laughs> it's like, it feels like it's very hard. Uh, how much are people aligned? Um, uh, this is an age old question. And uh, yeah, we wanted to, we wanted to see. You have this beautiful chart. I'm looking at it right now of like, and I, I love like visualizing this, like, there's this sort of nucleus of things we would all kind of say are penguin-ish, penguin-like. Right. But as you move away from that nucleus into the the electron cloud of penguinness, it's very, very like people will not agree with all the other concepts that we may have about this thing. And I I dig this because you you show this for every concept like whales, salmon, Barack Obama. Uh, yeah. People have sort of a small number of things that we would agree upon as the features of this concept. And then we have a much larger range of things we would not agree about. And if I'm thinking correctly, that that leads to an assumption that my gigantic word cloud association, super network, whatever metaphors we need to make sense of this, I have this intuition that mine must be pretty much more similar to yours than it actually is. And I'm wondering the two people who like work in a, if somebody who works in a zoo in San Diego and somebody who works in a zoo in Atlanta, Georgia, who both uh, deal with penguins every day um, and a veterinarian who treats penguins specifically, if that is a, such a person, like I would imagine their overlap is much greater, right? Uh, yeah, you, that, that, that is a prediction you would expect. That is not something that we test in the paper. Um, but uh, there's a lot of other evidence that uh, the beliefs that we form are a byproduct of the experiences that we have. Uh, this is a really simple but really profound aspect of human psychology. Uh, the world is super big and you're forming beliefs about the big wide world necessarily on a very sparse sample that's a subset of it, a really small subset. So because all people are living very different lives and having very different sets of experiences, they're taking very different samples, and you'd expect that that is the origin point for why there is variability. I would add, though, that while you would expect two people who work at two different zoos to have borderline concepts on penguins, two people, even if they're raised in the exact same environment, you would not expect for, I would not expect for them to have exactly the same concepts. Um, I sometimes use the, the very dramatic example of conjoined twins. Two conjoined twins, even though they are physically in the same space, 
all of the time. They have two different minds, two different sets of eyes. They are going to be sampling differently, even though they're in the same physical environments. We know that the way in which people sample from the world follows from the samples that they've accumulated previously. And especially to people that are spending a lot of time together, again, conjoined twins is a, is a dramatic example, uh, they tend to specialize. So if you live with somebody, um, uh, people report acquiring very specialized knowledge. So like one person will know what trash day is. The other person will know something else about like how to clean the gutters. And when one person is out of town, the other person might be surprised that they don't have some set of knowledge. And it's because it doesn't make sense to have redundant knowledge. People sort of specialize in that way. Even two people that were physically in the same spaces all of the time should be taking slightly different samples from the world. And I would not expect would have exactly the same concepts as a result of that. Let me briefly run through the paper. I will never talk about it. Um, all right, so you got thir about 3,000 people, nearly 3,000 people, and you divided them in half. I'm looking at my notes. Yes. Uh, and then you, what did you do with those people? Yeah, so uh, we got around the problem that other people had had in trying to quantify how much concepts align. Um, the primary impediment to doing that in the obvious way you think to do it first is like, well, let me understand something about the compositionality. Um, that's hard. We can't do that. So um, we skipped that step and instead um, had people make similarity judgments across common concepts in two domains. So the two domains we chose um, were common animals. Uh, and then we wanted something that was like common animals. We want something that's animate, um, but we want something about which people may have um, different types of judgments. We wanted something kind of moralistic. So we also took U.S. politicians um, and had people uh, make similarity judgments in that domain too. Um, each person was assigned to one target. So let's say you have chicken. Um, you make similarity judgments like what's most similar to a chicken? Is it a dolphin or is it a finch? Um, and uh, we do that for all, we do all of those pairwise comparisons for each of the concepts that we're testing. Um, what you get out is a uh, vector of responses about what you rate to be most similar um, to, for example, a chicken. Um, and uh, the intuition there is if it's the case that we all have crudely pretty much the same concept, um, all of your similarity judgments should be the same also. So this allows us to get at your conceptual representation without knowing the details of uh, what the composition of your concept is. So that, that's, the, that's the hack that we use um, in order to get at this. Once we have those response vectors, um, we can now perform clustering over them in order to uh, uh, figure out how many latent versions of each concept exist in the population. And so we can see things like um, for um, uh, this concept, we have two distinct clusters. For this concept, we have 10 distinct clusters. Um, uh, and what we found was that there's a substantial amount of variation. Um, there are quite a number of different clusters um, for both the uh, more concrete concepts and for the more abstract ones. So you, you have these people, you divided them up, you've, uh, you have them talk about animals. You also have uh, this other thing where you had them um, list 10 adjectives and uh, rate features. Right. Uh, I love the idea that seals are not feathered, but they are slippery. This is something most people think. Yes. But not everyone agrees whether that seals are graceful. Some people think, see them as graceful and some do not. And then with Donald Trump, you had like, some, most people agree that this is uh, a man who is not humble. 
and that he is wealthy, uh, but they disagree quite a bit over whether or not he is interesting, which is, I love how nebulous the term interesting is. Uh, what did you, what did you learn from this? Did this, these, these two phases of the, the research, uh, what, what stuck out to you? Yeah. So, so there's, there's a lot that we learned and a lot that was surprising. Um, uh, I'll start with the first set of things. So the, like doing the clustering over people's similarity judgments showed us that there's a substantial amount of variability in both concrete and abstract concepts. Um, there's a second part of that first experiment, which is we also asked people um, uh, for their judgments on how likely they thought somebody was to share their concept. Um, and based on that, um, we wanted to know, are people well calibrated to uh, the likelihood that somebody is aligned with them? And what we found out from that is that they are not. Um, when you are activating a concept, when you are saying a word, um, you generally expect that someone else will share that concept, will activate the same concept when you say the word. Um, uh, you think that's more common than it actually is. Um, most of the time, as, as we talked about, um, someone else is not activating the same concept, even for the same word in the same context. Um, so that was useful. Um, the second analysis where we asked people for features over the superset of words. So we asked people to generate a bunch of features for um, seal and for penguin and for um, uh, all of the other words that we have in our animal set. Um, then we ask a separate group of people to uh, rate whether or not each feature applied to each concept. And that's how we get those, those plots that look like kind of word clouds. Um, uh, something interesting in those is that tells us something about why we have distinct clusters. So some things stand out like people disagreeing about whether or not penguins are heavy or light. Um, uh, but something else that was really interesting to us in those plots is that uh, for the politicians, uh, there's not just information in terms of what features are contentious and what features are agreed upon. Uh, there's also information in the distribution of features. So some of the politicians have quite a lot of features that are in the middle, where there's a lot of disagreement about a lot of features. Um, an example of someone like that is Biden. Uh, people really are not on the same page. Most of the features are, are towards the middle. You have very few features that everybody agrees do or don't apply. Um, for Obama, Obama is often held up as an example of like a polarizing politician. Um, uh, there are very few features in the middle, which was surprising to me when I first saw it. Um, uh, Biden, everybody agrees, um, uh, is honest, that he's intelligent, uh, he's hardworking. People are on the same page about that. Um, uh, they also agree uh, on the features that do not apply to him. There's very little in the middle. So what this means <laughs> is that um, although people feel very different ways about Obama, uh, that disagreement um, about whether or not you like Obama is not originating from people disagreeing about what Obama is or isn't. As like people are generally on the same page and have uh, a, a more aligned in terms of their conceptual understanding of Obama. That is super fascinating. This yeah. Think of the information, the information deficit hypothesis, right? That the our disagreement lies in that we don't have all the facts. Yeah. And you just need you just need some more of the facts and then we'd both see this, this the same way. Yeah, I think that's a great demonstration that it's 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 not it's not that simple. Um one one reason why we might disagree is because we're activating different concepts. Um we agree we disagree about what's true. Um, but that's not the only reason we can disagree. We can be on exactly the same page and still have disagreement for other reasons. That is amazing. So if I'm hearing you correctly in your study, most people have a very, a pretty similar 
as as similar as it can get, considering all the things we discussed. Concept of uh, well, I'll put it this way: if the the they're they agree on what Obama is. Yes, but it isn't. But when you ask, but they don't agree on considering this is what Obama is. They don't necessarily agree on how to feel about that. Yeah, uh, that's and right. And whereas Biden is a is interestingly uh, inverted in a way. We don't all agree on what Biden even is. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Right. And it, we, we have not we have not to date used this method to chart changes in alignment or opinion over time. But this is a method that you absolutely could use to do something like that. You could use this to um, see if uh, people's concepts become more or less aligned over time. Um, you could also use this potentially to see if some kind of intervention got people more on the same page. So it, it has potential use beyond what we've used it for in this paper. Your paper gives me a new uh, material for this because I love the idea that, oh, we can very much agree completely. Like we could both have PhD level understandings of an issue, but completely disagree. We, we agree on what is, but we don't agree on anything else. And I think that's incredible. I love it. You're like, this feels like the haymaker to the information deficit hypothesis. And I love Yay. it. So. <laughs> Okay, before we go into the final segments of this episode, to sum up, kids' work has supplied ample evidence to suggest that there is tremendous variation in our internal concepts of reality itself. We may share words, we may share the same dictionaries and textbooks, but thanks to all the variations in our experiences and differing levels of ignorance and expertise and the vast array of variable cultural influences, the likelihood even if we share the same language, if we share the same country, the same hometown, the same household, the likelihood that your concept of something like, say, penguins is identical to mine is extremely low. Also, her work suggests you can think of a word and the concept it refers to as a sort of atom-like entity as a nucleus of shared ideas surrounded by an electron cloud of variations. Some words have more variations than others, but no word is without a lot of variation. So that means even for words with broadly shared definitions, there's a near zero chance that any one of us shares an identical copy of that core concept that the word generates when conjured up and contemplated by any one particular brain. And here's the most important aspect of this research for me. The evidence suggests we are all mostly unaware of this variation, and not just unaware. We believe the opposite is true. We erroneously believe most other people share our ideas, our concepts and models and mental imagery, our semantics. And as the paper says, quote, this points to one factor that likely interferes with productive political and social discourse. This presents such an existential thing for me. The, I, it's like to accept what you've got here, the, your research and like your expertise, is to accept that we're living in a grand illusion. It's a best guess. Yeah, but like it's all these separate subjective realities working together. Right. And there's, an, a, there's this grand illusion that we're all living in the same shared space but we are very divided by our conceptual understandings and, and 
yet we still seem to manage somehow. Yeah. Somehow people work together to create the technology for us to be having this conversation. Somehow uh, they created the academic institution in which you are employed. Yeah. What do you what are your thoughts on like if there's so many concepts that you found just in this one paper? One one brain's interacting with another brain and they do not have identical concepts about the things they're discussing. How are we managing to get anything done if we're all living in these private universes? So that that's a really, really great question that I love thinking about. And I don't think we have a full answer. We're talking, we're using a a, a learned symbolic system, um, which is English, which is allowing us to at least crudely align our ideas with one another. Um, we don't know exactly to what degree there may be variability, but every time we get closer to looking at it, like in this paper, as like we look at just like concrete nouns in our paper, we find there's way more variability than we'd expect. So um, what follows from that is that I should expect that we are not as aligning as well as it feels like we're aligning when we're talking. Um, and yet we're able to get stuff done. You're going to record this podcast episode. We're going to leave this conversation with new ideas that we didn't have before that we got from one another. Um, they may not be the ones that the other one intended for us to get, and that's an important thing to appreciate. It could be the case that not being perfectly aligned in terms of the way that we think about the world could benefit us in some ways. One of the things that I really, really love about humans as a species is that we are very weird. I was like, we have curiosity other animals, other primates, other species have curiosity, but human curiosity is fundamentally different in that we take it to extremes. If you think about like what we spend doing in a day, a lot of it is indulging our curiosity as like we find out stuff that we don't need, obviously, for getting food or for reproducing. I was like, we spend a lot of time doing that kind of thing. Um, uh, we're willing to pay money for information sooner rather than later. I was like, I'll pay $5 for an episode of something to see how a story resolves uh, rather than waiting to, 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 to see it free a month later. We are very, very curious. And our curiosity, the way that it works is we tend to want to build on the ideas and concepts that we already have some basis in. So when you're little, you don't know anything. Everything is great. Anything you find on the carpet is like very entertaining for a baby. <laughs> and um, that's because they don't have any base knowledge. Uh, once they start learning stuff about the world, uh, the first stuff they learn biases them to want more information on those same topics. And people, to a degree that is not true in any species that I know of, specialize such that we have people that know just about the costuming of Victorian era, I don't know, blacksmiths. I was like, we, we have people that specialize in very, very specific things. Um, you have people that know all about baseball statistics just from the 1950s from New York. That is a byproduct of the way our curiosity systems function. And uh, what that means is two things. Number one, individually, we're not very useful for surviving in the world. One person is not good at surviving in the world by themselves. But two, uh, as a population of people, we have way more breadth than other species in terms of what we know as a group. So if you have a bunch of different members of a population that all specialize in different things, you bring them together, 
our strength is in the variability in terms of our knowledge and our concepts, we can do incredible things. We can make spaceships and we can shoot them off to the moon. We can send a person to the moon. Um, we can build laptops. We can do science. We can have this podcast. Uh, our strength as a species, I would argue, is because of the variability in our knowledge. And part of the variability in that knowledge is also the variability in our concepts. So um, it may be a, a feature instead of a bug. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Celeste Kidd's website is kidlab.com. That's with two Ds, K-I-D-D-L-A-B.com. Her Twitter account is at Celeste Kidd, C-E-L-E-S-T-E-K-I-D-D. And over at Berkeley, it's psychology.berkeley.edu slash people slash Celeste dash K-I-D-D. For links to everything that we talked about, including the research paper, which is titled Latent Diversity in Human Concepts, head to youarenotsosmart.com or check out the show notes inside your podcast player. There'll be links to stuff in there too. My new book, How Minds Change, which I say it's new. It's almost been a year now since it came out, which is astonishing. Uh, I just got back from two weeks of book tour across the Netherlands and in London uh, promoting it. I'll probably be talking about it for a long time, even though I'm working on a new book right now about genius. What does that word actually really truly mean? You can find links to how minds change in the show notes right there in your podcast player. And you can go to the homepage for how minds change. We can find a round table video with a group of persuasion experts featured in the book. You can read a sample chapter, download a discussion guide, sign up for the newsletter, read reviews. You can also check out some of the podcasts that I've been on promoting it. And I should note that I I did the audiobook for it and it was really fun and I enjoyed doing that. And I don't promote that enough. For links to all the past episodes of this podcast, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. If you'd like to subscribe to the newsletter, it's over on Substack. The title of the newsletter is disambiguation. We're also on Facebook. Like 400,000 people follow the podcast on Facebook slash you are not so smart over there. And if you'd like to support this operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features, help pay for me to fly to places and interview people, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad free, but the higher amounts get you posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. And the best way to support the show is just tell everybody you know about it. If any episode really landed for you, send them a link to that. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. <laughs>